This week on the BOAG World Web Show, we're joined by Abby Covert, who will redefine how you see information architecture. Both Media Temple and Opera are back sponsoring this week's show, and we love them for it, so big kisses all round to them. BoagWorld.com, the podcast for those involved in designing, developing and running websites on a daily basis. My name's Paul, joining me is Marcus. Hello Marcus. Hello Paul, how are you? I'm alright actually, I, I'm, I'm recovering from the excitement that was the eclipse this morning. Oh, I was going to talk about that, about Sod's Law, un- perfect example of Sod's Law. I'm looking out of my window now at a perfectly blue sky. I know. I mean, one side to the other, blue sky. 9.30 this morning, we've got a 90% solar eclipse, and I reckon there was a mile of cloud above me. It was... Um, I, I almost didn't notice the difference. <laughs> yeah, I wandered downstairs, and I thought, bloody, it's a bit dark down here. And I thought, oh, yeah, it's the eclipse. <laughs> but it was... It and was, that was it. It was the most pathetic experience. It made me... I tweeted this, actually. I tweeted, you know, it. you know you're living in the wrong country when there is a you know, 90% solar eclipse and you barely notice the difference because of the cloud and misery that is Britain. Yeah. Well, I I remember the one in 1999. So where, do I. That was great. Yeah, because I, I, I was stood in the middle of Waterloo Bridge in London with about, I don't know, 10,000 other people watching it. And that was something else because that, that it was... It, if I remember rightly, it was a touch cloudy, but you could see the sun, see what was happening. But today, it really was just this massive blanket over... But yeah, isn't it just typical? I'm looking out at a perfect, you know, know. March afternoon. And, um, yeah... And then mm. the next one apparently is 2090. That's right. I don't expect I'll be around for that one. No. I don't think even my son probably, but he was <laughs> gutted. Because my son's really into physics and astronomy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So he was really gutted. So, oh, yes. Gur to the weather. Yeah, but you can go on holiday to places that have, when you know, that nice. If you're really, really into it, basically you can chase them around the world. Yeah, you can. I did tell him that. Yeah. And suggested that you might want to do that. So that's good. Hey, I'm, I'm girl for another reason as well. You're back home. I, well, I'm, all right, I'm girl for two reasons. I'm, <laughs> I'm in a grumpy-ass mood. So, A, I'm back home. And yeah. I'm working at a desk just sucks. <laughs> I've been to some gorgeous places. Well, you know, all your family comes from down there. And it's been lovely weather. And we've been sitting looking at gorgeous views. And I've been working. And it's been great and fun. And home sucks. And then I come home and I've decided I've got grumbly. I've decided I need to not be a partnership and I need to become a limited company and I need to sort out terms and conditions and VAT. And so I'm filling in paperwork and it's like, I hate the world. <sighs> exactly. <laughs> That's how much I care about that, Paul. <laughs> You're full of, full of love and sympathy, aren't you? Absolutely. 
Um, I did have something to say then. I can't remember the life of me. I'm, I'm, I'm just too busy. It's probably something smug along the lines of, <laughs> well, I've got Chris to do all of that kind of stuff, <laughs> which I had for 13 years, and suddenly I don't. If you ask him nicely, he'll help you. Actually, I've found a really good accountant. She's doing most of it. All right, there you go. But, but we are both utterly, utterly run off our feet. Good. Kind of like spinning, spinning. Well, we both well made made the stupid mistake of going to sorry i've got something in my mouth a hair in my mouth um going going to the smashing conference <laughs> hang on a minute hang on a minute you never get a news reader say that do you or some professional broadcaster oh, i've got a hair in reading mouth. the news you're not very committed to professionalism i don't think it's meant to be natural this oh is it sport. all right yes so yeah you went to i but i'm hugely envious of the fact that you went to smashing conference it was really good actually Shut up. Um, you know, you always get a couple of talks that I thought meh, and but the majority of them were were great, uh, really good. Uh, my personal conclusion, I will write this up, but I haven't got time to do it at the moment, um, is that the message from the conference was grow up. It was basically stop doing, don't, stop doing frivolous things and bring the web to the world in a way that is good and quick and stuff like that so what are uh, you mean you know yeah stop stop worrying about whether your icons are flat or not and worry about performance and usability and things like that yeah exactly yeah. that yeah. Oh, I, I, i'm good yes it was a good really good conference loved it um lots of good things came out of it i took lots of notes because i thought if you don't take lots of notes you'll forget all of this and that you haven't got time to kind of just write it all up at the moment so i've got lots of notes and i will share in a blog post at some point in the next couple of weeks to be honest even if you don't write it up in notes the act of writing it down i think helps you remember it better it does that's true but there was so much in such a short period yeah I think, oh what did that what was that one about you know so, but i've got it all so good I'm, I'm pleased but no it was it was very good um and i said hello to vitali and cat um as i was supposed to Woohoo! good <laughs> so from, um, from you basically so you're really busy that's good i'm really pleased yeah so this podcast has just turned into a kind of catch up on what's going on in headscape time <laughs> yes it is uh, we've got i mean I've, I've got there's um uh we've had the go ahead from a um uh, an organization but i can't talk about them yet because it's not official so <laughs> Now, right. this really is getting quite dull. Maybe this bit we ought to take offline. Yes, let's take it offline. But yes, <laughs> but, but I'm, not, I'm not only busy because, you know, it, it, good news things are coming in. I'm busy because I spent two days at a conference. Yeah. See, mistake. <sighs> Never go away and enjoy yourself. Yeah. It's not allowed. <laughs> he says coming back from but two weeks. Nice. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Yeah. Working behind a desk. You say working behind a desk sucks. I don't agree. Because every time when the weather gets properly nice, I think to myself, oh, I'm going to go down and sit outside. And I've got a lovely garden table. I've got a big oh, house yeah. there, all this kind of thing. Yeah. And I go down there, and the birds are tweeting in my ears. The wind's blowing. And your screen uh, reflections. Yeah, and, and then yeah. I think, I've got a perfect place just up there that's all yeah. set out perfectly for me. So I'm, uh, it's, it's a fine line, is it? It's got to be a mixture of both. Because I go stir crazy if I'm just sitting at desk all the time. And I do like mixing it up. And I do like... Um, you know, what's been really nice in the motorhome is we park up. I'm sitting in the motorhome at a desk, actually. But if I just look over the top of my computer, there is some gorgeous view. Yeah, that's And nice. then if I want to get up and wander around, you know, you go and make a cup of coffee. Mm. I go walk along the beach for 10 minutes, you know? Yeah, that, yeah, that's nice. Very nice. Lovely. So that's what I like. 
Yeah. But yeah, I do know what you mean. Oftentimes I've gone to try and work in the garden and I've just got hot and sweaty and I can't <laughs> see what I'm doing. You think, what am I doing? And you think, <laughs> I, I'm enjoying this. I'm British. It's sunny. I will be outside. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Hey, let's talk about opera. Yes. Talk about opera. Opera, opera are our sponsor. They're sponsoring the transcription of this week's show because they're really, these guys are seriously into kind of accessibility and, and in a way that I really respect and really admire. For example, I want to talk about Opera Mini for a minute, right? Get this. See, you think, we think of opera, don't we, as, oh, oh yeah, they're the also-run run people. You know, there's there's kind of Firefox and there's there's Chrome and there's Safari and there's Internet Explorer. Oh, yes, and then there's opera. You know, that's often how we think about it. Mm. But actually, when it comes to mobile, that is complete and utter bollocks, Right. They listen to this. These stats. They, it just blows your mind. Two hundred and sixty million people use Opera Mini every month. Right in India alone, they've just reached fifty million people. Okay, mm-hmm. and for tens of millions of people, it's the only way that they access the web. They only use Opera Mini on their feature phone because they've got low power these obviously this is in developing countries mm. right they've got low powered feature phones that can't run a full web experience and so they run opera mini instead because it's very lightweight and do you know how many different types of device can you imagine the device testing for this mm. opera mini works on over 3000 different devices yeah i feel physically sick at the <laughs> thought of that well bruce lawson spoke at uh, smashing conference oh did he really yeah. oh cool and uh he uh, talking about opera mini talking about the web uh and talking about why the web is important and for many people people you've just described the web is teacher doctor voice to the world um and it needs to happen through a feature phone yeah um so don't worry. Don't don't assume that your audience has the latest iPhone. Uh, and that's why doesn't. I get so pissed off at these people that that go, um, you know, say things like, "Oh yeah, well we're building a building a web app, so it has to be reliant on JavaScript." And mm. um, yeah, yeah. And so this progressive enhancement stuff just doesn't apply in our situation. Bollocks! It does. This you know, would, yeah. Just, grow up, basically. Grow up. Yeah. There you go. This is a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I love, love about Opera Mini um, is that it renders and compresses data on the server, right? So often it compresses data by 90%, so it can send it to devices faster and cheaper because in most countries, um, people pay per megabyte. That's true. Right? So, so, so much, and you know, I, I, my initial reaction is, yeah, well, I don't live in the developing world because I'm very narrow-minded, <laughs> all right? I'm very bigoted. And if it doesn't affect me, I don't care. But then it occurred to me. It doesn't exist, does it, Paul? No, it doesn't. I'm, I'm very. I don't know, exist because you can't see me. If I can't see you, well, I presume you cease to exist when I put the, the phone down to you. <laughs> you know, the whole universe revolves around me. I mean, 50 million users in India, that could be a made-up number. I'm not convinced India exists because I've never seen it. <laughs> So how do I know? Probably time to stop now, Paul. Is it? Yeah. Right. Uh, If you live in India, I'm very sorry. Um, So, yes. So what was I saying? Yeah, but the reason that this interested me, I'm dragging it back to to the point, um, was, of course, when you go abroad, okay, Mm -hmm. uh, or even even in this country, right? So I have – this is going to be shameful, right? I have, as a family – 
we have let me th- do, just do the calculations we have we have about 25 gigabytes worth of mobile data in a month right we burnt through that in two weeks 25 gig yeah that's unbelievable yeah i have two gigabytes i get two gigabytes free a month with the uh you know with the my contract that I'm on, mm-hmm. um, and I use probably about a hundred meg usually. I would yeah. have used a lot more because I went to Oxford to the conference this month, but usually sod all. Yeah, well, that's why. Well, that's what I mean because we were away in the motorhome. Yeah, right. Still, so, twenty-five I, gig. That's ridiculous. What were you doing? Downloading films? Well, no, I was uploading films actually because I was recording no. a, a, a video series for Spotify, and each one of them was five hundred meg. So, I mean that that gets through it fairly quickly. But mm. my point, my, uh, it, yes. It's disgraceful. We used too much data. But my point is, when you go abroad, you've like got 100 meg or something, haven't you? You've got, yeah. you know, silly amounts. And so I am so installing Opera Mini. If it can compress my data by like 90%, mm. then that suddenly it's really good. And it works. It, it compresses video as well. So um, that, of course, removes buffering, which is really good. So uh, anyway, it's not just feature phones. They've also got, um, you can run Opera Mini on Android, iOS, Win, Windows phone as well. Um, and then suddenly, you know, it becomes a lot cheaper and a lot faster by using their browser. So I'm definitely going to be doing that. And they've also, they've also just released a new version with Flexbox and CSS REM unit supports and uh, lots of things that I don't understand. Um, and, and 260 million users are automatically going to be upgraded to that. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> so if you want to find out more about um, them and what they're doing, you can go to dev.opera.com if you want details about all the features that they can support and how you can test and stuff like that. If you want to know more about Opera and download um, Opera Mini, then go to boagworld.com forward slash opera. Uh, we probably spent too long on that, but it's really interesting. You have to ask me a question. You have to ask me what is my default browser. What is your default browser? Opera. Really? Yeah. On your what? On your desktop or on your mobile? On my desktop. Ah, oh, no, we're talking about mobiles. This I know, week, but so you I'm need just to catch saying, up. Last week, we were going to. I was going to download it and right. start using it, and it's my default browser now. Wow, you liked it that much? Well, I, I don't dislike it at all. I think would be the best way to describe it. Oh, okay, it works a treat. It's invisible. Yes. Yeah, that's that's the way you want it to be, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, so that's enough about Opera. Now, next week you have to have downloaded Opera Mini. Oh, yeah, I can do that. I, I ought to do that. I haven't done it either. But suddenly <laughs> I'm, I'm much more interested in it. Anyway, yeah, we spent far too long talking about Opera. <laughs> Bruce will be very happy with this. So let's talk, about, let's talk about the interview instead. Yes. So this week we've got um, Abby C- uh, Covert coming mm-hmm. on the show. Now, I've got a problem with Abby. I'll tell you about Abby in a minute, right? The pro- I couldn't work out... Every time I talk about Abby, right, I get this kind of kind of cool vibe. Now, I've met Abby, and she is very cool. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but it seems to be disproportionate to her as a person. And almost like this kind of, kind of secret agent vibe off of her, right? <laughs> and I couldn't work out why. Is it because her name's Covert? It, it is partly that, yes. <laughs> My wife watches this thing called Covert Affairs, which is about of a, a kind of a young woman that looks a bit like Abby as well, um, who who kind of becomes a a covert operative. Right. And so I now just associate Abby with Covert Affairs. 
So I'm really sorry, Abby. Because actually, she's not. Well, she might be a secret agent, for all I know. But she, I bet she's not. Do you, you, you don't know. You see, you know. She travels around the world a lot, speaking at conferences. Good cover. Um, okay. I, I think there's an argument to be made here. <laughs> anyway, what she pretends to be as her day job is an independent information architect. She also teaches at the School of Visual Arts in New York and is the president of the, inter- in the IA Institute. Mm. Wow, she sounds important. Very. It's too important for this show. <laughs> and she's also author of the best book I've read for ages called um, How to Make Sense of Any Mess. And I'll put a link in the show notes to her book. It, it's definitely one worth reading. If you think you understand information architecture, you don't. Read her book, then you will. And listen to this interview because that'll help as well. She's a really cool um, person. She's very, very intelligent. Blew my mind reading her book, as you will hear from the interview. So we've got Abby joining us. Hello, Abby. How are you? Hello. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, so Abby. you're in New York at the moment. I am, yes. Is it is it as snowy as it seems to be everywhere else in New York? Uh, yes, we had the snow plows out a few hours ago, uh, so it is it is walkable now. So we're not we're not trying to shut down the cities like like we did last uh, last week. But it's you know there's snow. It's not a big deal. I'm so envious. We we <laughs> uh, we don't really get proper snow anymore, do we, Marcus? We got a little dusting last week, and that was it. Yeah, mm. we did get proper snow a few years ago, but not not like. But then didn't I read really? Didn't I really? Can't put my teeth back in that you would there was. You know, there was a threat of, you know, kind of life-stopping snow and New York would be under 20 feet of snow, but then it didn't really arrive. Is that right? That is true, yes. And I was uh, I was actually flying to Copenhagen during that whole incident. Oh, okay. So they, they cancelled my flight and then I got to sit at home and watch as it did not snow and we did not leave. <laughs> so it was, it, was not, it was not great. But um, I think, I don't know, the city is, is very cautious about, you know, things ever since Sandy. So there's definitely, we have weather anxieties i guess yeah i've noticed that that was the one thing that really um threw me when i was in america um last is this uh, where suddenly everybody around me got texts including me of these kind of weather warnings we don't have that over here because we never get exciting weather yeah no that's that's uh one of the uh the more fun parts of being an american is getting those those alerts on phone this time they actually sent it out at like 11 30 p.m so many people were like in bed and all of a sudden all the phones in the house are like going off with alarms and saying disasters so exciting stuff it's interesting to watch yeah Yeah. it was more interesting on the news than it was to live through Mm. so i think that might now i've got to say no no disrespect but that is a very american thing isn't it we're gonna we're gonna send a message to everybody's phone in the world and tell them that it's going to be disaster while in britain it'd be like you know, a vague comment by the weatherman, and that'd be it. Well, because our, our messages would just be rain. Yeah, like, <laughs> next day rain. It would be the rains. most boring, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we ought to talk about yeah. kind of webby stuff. Exactly. Because, sure. uh, as as you know, Abby, um, uh, I've recently read your book. Unlike Marcus, that hasn't got round to it. No, don't feel bad, Marcus. I'm feeling a little Sorry. bit bad. I'm I'm terribly sorry because uh, of all the guests we've had so far. Your, what you do is probably the closest to what I do, or one of the things I do is kind of close to what you do is probably the the right way of putting it. So I probably should have, but I, I've been I've been uh, otherwise otherwise engaged quite a lot lately. So my apologies. Mm. 
Well, no, no apology is necessary. That's the reason to write a book, right? So it lives on and people can pick it up when I they find the day. time. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, on the other hand, don't do anything apparently and have time to sit around and read books. So, so there you go. And I've got to say, as I said um, in the review I wrote, and I'll put a link in the show notes to that, it, it was a real revelation to me because – it had this much broader picture of information architecture than than maybe most people think of. And so, so the first question I wanted to ask you is, how do you define the role of an information architecture uh, architect? Where does it stop and start from your point of view? So I think that one of the most important things to discuss around that question is this idea of defining information architecture versus defining the role of an information architect. Yeah. I think that those are, are very different things, and they come into play um, in different ways. So I'll start with the, um, the architect question, since that's what you actually asked. Um, from my standpoint, an information architect is a specialist that can go into an organization or a team and help them to think through the challenges that are brought on by looking across many diverse mediums and uh, goals, intents, personalities, politics, what have you, to come to a resolution with that team on the way that we're going to arrange the parts of something for it to be the most meaningful against the intent of the team. So if the team wants to sell more pancakes, we can rearrange the menu of their restaurant to sell more pancakes. If we want to get people to pick up the phone, we can you know, drive uh, calls to a 1-800 number or a, a call-in campaign. It all has to do with kind of taking what the medium is that is being worked with uh, and sometimes realizing that that's more than one medium being, you know, the web versus physical is uh, kind of a large break and being able to look across those things and work with people um, to find meaning in bringing those things together. Because in reality, users do not experience those things as much in silos as designers create them mm-hmm. in silos. So um, so as an information architect, my, my job tends to be to look across those silos, to bring those people together, and to have very honest discussions about goals and language and the structure's impact on those things. Um, so structures often do kind of deteriorate your language or your meaning, uh, unfortunately, when you don't look at things holistically. Mm. So, so you wanted to define information architecture as well, which I think is a very worthwhile thing to do. How do you define it from that point of view? So the interesting thing about information architecture is once you've defined it the way that I think about it, it really turns into a retronym as opposed to um, a thing that was invented. It becomes something that's always been a part of, of being human and the way that we think of things. So I define information architecture as the way that we choose to arrange the parts of something to get our meaning across to others. Mm. Simple as that. So when we started to um, add page numbers to books because we wanted people to be more easily able to reference things across books and to each other, we were practicing information architecture. When we published train schedules for the first time in support of this new idea of having something that had to run on a schedule, (laughs) we were practicing information architecture. And in the early days of the web, when we realized that the hyperlink had dramatically changed what it meant to build a structure uh, physically by moving it into this virtual space, we had this need that was very much filled by this idea called information architecture. Um, And that's sort of where we're at now. Mm. I mean, instantly, you've kind of exploded out information architecture into a much bigger thing than most people think of it. You know, most people think of it as, you know, uh, organizing content within a website. And you've talked about it as being essentially organizing anything um, Mm -hmm. into some kind of structure. 
Now, that then begs the question of where does your job start and stop? Where are the edges of it? Are there edges of it? I mean, I, I feel like I can put a pretty clear edge on that I don't design objects. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, I don't, I don't design the final thing that a user holds very often unless that user is a designer. Um, so I make a lot of maps for business people. I make a lot of um, maps for designers to work with, for writers to work with, for technologists to reference um, in teams. But when it comes to the final thing that the user is touching, I do not specify the interface. I do not pick the colors. I I don't decide what's an icon and what's not an icon. Um, I have those discussions as part of my job with the people that make those decisions, but it is not my craft. It is not my specialty to make those decisions. And I, I try to remain respectful of that because otherwise it does kind of get into a situation where there's a lot of opinions in, mm. uh, in a lot of rooms. So I try to not be an opinion on anything except for structural resilience and the quality of what we mean. Yeah. Maybe stating the obvious, but information is the key word and information is everywhere. It's just not on websites. It's, it's, it's all right. over the place. So you, yeah, you can and architect I mean, information, as you said, relating to things like books. Um, so it has. It's. I, I. I probably should know this, but I don't know who coined the term. Where does it? Where does it come from? Do you know, Abby? Yeah, it was coined in an academic paper back in the uh, in the late sixties. I think it was like sixty eight. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and then it was brought more into a rebirth, I would say, um, by Richard Saul Werman, bringing it up at the American Institute of Architects. Um, so they have like an annual meeting similar to the IA Summit that we yeah. have. You know, the, uh, real architects have those too. And Richard Saul Werman was heavily involved with chairing uh, that conference. And he made the theme of the conference the architecture of information uh, along with his opening address. And that was far before uh, thoughts of it being applied to, to digital spaces. I mean, he, you know, along with anyone who was working that time, knew what the impact of computers potentially would be on what they were doing. But he was still talking about it in in terms of things like books and mm. museum displays and um, experience design in that you know real life sense of the word as opposed to the the digital life sense. What I find so fascinating about this is that is you say that you know you don't interfere in the design process or you you know you don't do the design you don't set the colors etc but when you talk about information architecture in the way that you do it really does touch on so much and one of the phrases that you use in the book and you used it in the talk where i first heard you speak is you know going down the rabbit hole and <laughs> finding out where that takes you so do you want to explain that a little bit because i, I love that concept yeah, so I mean, I, I try to talk to my students uh, pretty openly about you know the fact that information architecture is something that even if you're not an information architect specialist, you're going to be practicing it uh, as part of your job. Otherwise, you're sort of working on this on this surface level. Mm-hmm. And the idea of understanding that that getting past the surface, I think, is is best represented in, in sort of a metaphor of finding these places that other people that you're working with maybe don't necessarily want to go, like these subjects that they don't want to open up for discussion, these cans of worms, you'll hear them (laughs) referred to as. Um, And often those are actually the key to the success of the resilience of the system over time. And so I really encourage uh, designers and and technologists and business people alike to get more comfortable um, as we get into this mushier cross-channel world of finding those things and, and going into those rabbit holes of 
crazy and, and saying like, whoa, what is down there? What are we actually dealing with? Because I, I do find that there's a lot of anxiety that keeps people out of the hole. Um, but there's also a lot of resolution that can only be found once inside of it. So mm. that's sort of where I think we have to strike a balance. You don't want to drag your entire team down a rabbit hole uh, just because, you know, you know, because Thursday or whatever, um, you want to have a reason, but it, it does turn out that a lot of times, uh, a lot of conversations end in, well, we don't want to go down that rabbit hole or we don't want to open up that can of worms. And then, you know, six months, nine months, 12 months later, those are the problems that teams from the outside are being brought in to fix, you know, it's because they didn't go down that rabbit hole and, and therefore they decreased efficiency and scalability and resilience over time. I think the other aspect to that as well is that that um, we kind of fig- we sometimes turn around and say things like, um, "Well, it's not my job to interfere with that," and that was the the other thing that I kind of I picked up from from your book and from from hearing you speak that you know you can't approach information architecture in this kind of siloed manner. You need to just pursue it wherever it takes you, and it can take you all kinds of strange places. Yeah, yeah, and that's why I, I stated before I don't I don't like to like well, I try not to have opinions about what's going on as much as possible just simply because my job is to wrangle all the opinions. Mm-hmm. So why why would I add one more to the, <laughs> the mix of the mess that I've already got to deal with? Because in a lot of cases that is the reason to bring in a specialist as opposed to having it live only in the in the generalist uh, process. If you bring someone in from the specialist standpoint, they're able to ask those hard hitting questions. And in some cases, I am sent into rabbit holes to report back and say like, hey, how bad is it down there? Is it like really bad? Do we have to like send a whole team or can, can you just come back up and tell us what's going on? Mm. Um, and, you know, that there's value in that. So where do you feel, uh, you know, if you're, you're talking to somebody maybe that's not um, doing information ar- architecture full time, you know, but it, it, it's, it's an element of their job. Where should they be focusing? Where, where is the, either the real points where good work can be done or the real dangers that can be you know, encountered? The first thing I would say is if you're practicing information architecture at your desk by yourself, uh, you're probably not getting anywhere. So that's a big, a big clue. Um, information architecture as a practice is much less about the tools and much more about the process and the questions that you're asking and the, the collaborative uh, decisions that are being made. So I would definitely encourage anyone who is doing information architecture as a part of their process to really see if the collaboration part is being done at that point in the process. Because what I see a lot of times is that something like, you know, a sitemap or a flow diagram won't really be collaborated around. Mm-hmm. And it will just be set by somebody at their desk alone in a diagram. And then it'll be presented. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. presentation is almost like a statement of work, like a, an agreed to scope of what's going on. And the problem is that oftentimes that's met with like, well, wait a minute. Like, how did you get here? What what made you put that box there? What made you choose those arrows to connect those two boxes together? Like, tell me that process. And I, I feel oftentimes that we miss that step and we end up kind of um, getting into apologetics and, uh, and critique on a document that really shouldn't be created until some of those baseline conversations are had and kind of workshopped through. So that's interesting. You talked about conversations there, you talked about workshops and you talked about process. Talk us a little bit through about, 
you know, okay, so it's got to be collaborative. To produce an information architecture is a collaborative process. But how do you do that? Do you meet with key stakeholders individually? Do you get them into a room workshopping with them together? What's, what's the best approach there? So I actually, I just got back from uh, from doing a, a consulting engagement where it was, it was pretty typical of my process. So I can give you kind of that as an example. So leading up to the first time that I'm ever going to meet these people in person at all, um, I would have a set of stakeholder interviews. I usually do those uh, via video chat so I can at least get to know them. Sometimes voice is the only option, so we go with that. Um, and I really focus those conversations not on scope but on identifying problems, right? Like the mm. real emotional stuff. I ask them about what keeps them up at night. I, I ask them what the biggest challenge is to getting their goals done for the year. Things like that. Like very, I would say, management consulting type question line. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, and from there, I'm usually able to get a pretty good overview of what's going on and how many rabbit holes I might be dealing with. Um, and the people that I'm talking to at that point are generally in a larger organization at either the C-level or the, um, the senior director level. Mm-hmm. Um, and then generally from there, I am you know, told some differing perspectives on certain things that are pretty <clears throat> crucial. Um, I'm usually also able to identify from those conversations efforts that have been done in the past that were impacted as a result of those conversations not being had or resolved. So with that, I can sort of lead them through the first set of workshops, uh, which is I try to get it into two days because it's humane. Uh, to just, <laughs> you know, I, I also really like Thursday, Friday, so it kind of makes it so people have one half of their week uh, as work and then the yeah. other half is, is totally dedicated. So I like to get as many of the decision makers as possible into a room together. Um, <clears throat> and then we really start with talking about goals from the standpoint of you each have individual goals and this company has goals. But the thing that we're building is an ecosystem of digital and physical things that are supposed to meet all of those goals. So we need to bring it together to kind of see where all the overlaps are. Um, so through you know some guided exercises about goal setting, and I like to use a, a tool called performance continuums, uh, which I recently wrote a, a blog entry about last week and how I teach those to my students. Um, but from that activity, I'm usually able to get to a place where I understand the differing perspectives. I can see the holes in their language just through the way that they're verbalizing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of day one, they usually feel like, oh, holy cow, we actually do have a mess. We didn't, we kind of knew that. And there's usually, you know, the person who brought me in generally is very aware of that. Um, but to bring everybody into that moment of going, oh, huh there's a lot here and yeah, there are a lot of cracks in between the things. Um, and then day two is really about developing whatever taxonomies they need um, to serve the needs of what we talked about on day one. So for this particular company, it was uh, they have an e-commerce situation and they have grown to a global brand pretty quickly and their e-commerce has not grown with that. And so we had to work out some sort of strategy for them to um, prioritize the markets that they're going to reach with an e-commerce redesign af- effort in the next six months, nine months, 18 months out. Um, and that's a conversation that they had been trying to have in lunchrooms and the last 10 minute next steps of meetings that they've been having for months. You know, I didn't invent these problems for them and I didn't invent the ability to solve them, but to facilitate getting them there does tend to be my job. Um, And then it's drawing what, what they said, you know, I just, I like to, by the time I get back to my desk, I'm just documenting, Mm. you know, I'm not making decisions. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. There's one kind of yeah, but in there that, 
I always look for the yeah buts, the, the, the kind of, you know, sounds great, but. And the, the one yeah but that comes to my mind, which I know um, we struggle with from time to time, but I know a lot of other people really struggle with, which is uh, getting at the right people. You talked there about, um, you know, uh, that you were doing interviews with C-suites, um, you know, that kind of thing in quite large organizations. How do you succeed in doing And more importantly, how do you then get them to, to block out two days of their time in workshops? That is the hardest part of my job, yeah. <laughs> honestly. And, and to be honest, I, I don't do a great job of doing that myself. What I do a great job of is waiting. Um, I have a company right now that I started talking to in December, and we know that we want to work together. We know exactly what we want to do objective-wise, and they would love it if I would just do it for them. Right. But I won't. I just won't. So I work with my, my clients very flexibly, and I mean I do tend to get sent to Copenhagen on a red eye to go to a meeting, and it can be a little bit intense sometimes, but um, you know, I, and sometimes those stakeholder interviews, will they'll take months to pull together. Um, and that's just the length of, of the engagement. So I think that that actually is probably one of the biggest pieces of advice that I give to my students is be okay with realistic timing because mm. it's the way organizations like that work. They have their own pace. And even, you know, even large startups that I've worked with, it can be really hard to get everybody into a room. But for the company I started talking to in December, I got a note from them yesterday that they've blocked out two days at the end of May. And they've bought plane tickets and they're ready to go. Excellent. Wow. So, I mean, but I do, I have to wait until the end of May. So it's sort of, it's like a big Tetris game with my management consulting life. But, um, but that's all also very unique to, you know, the way that I choose to run my business. And, um, yeah, so I don't know how much of it is like me versus anyone else, you know. Well, it sounds like to me, the key of what you were saying there is not so much the waiting, but it's the refusal to do it any other way. Yeah. You know, it basically to say, well, look, this is the way I work. I can wait. I can wait. You know, you get people in a room and I'll be there rather than the, uh, the pressure to, oh, well, couldn't we just do it with these people? That's, right. Couldn't uh, we just jump on Skype? Couldn't I just give you yeah. an hour? I get that all the time. Couldn't we just fit this into a half a day? Couldn't you just come in on yeah. on Thursday and leave Friday? I mean, yeah, I get, I've heard it all. And to be honest with you, that that is part of the sales job of you know running your own your own show is going through that process. And it's not it's not necessarily the fun part of the job. But what I do know is that being an information architect is much like being a coffee filter. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how good the filter is if the coffee sucks. It's going to suck, you know, Mm. so I don't like to put any time on my side in until they're ready to do the work. Yeah, no, I like that. I like that a lot. So do I. I wish we could do that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always I'm I'm impressed by that a lot because what often happens is, you know, if if you want this job, we have to have it done by X or Y. I guess I've often said, as Paul has, um, that, you know, you need to learn when to walk away from things. But maybe I'm not as good at taking my own advice as I should be. (laughs) <laughs> possibly well, it's I mean, just how how you best work i think you, you really need to look at that over time and just see the impact you know like look at the last project that you got a rush start date on and think about if i had done it the way i wanted to in the time frame i had wanted it to would it be better mm. and just ask yourself that honestly because i mean there might be things that you're demanding from a timing perspective that aren't necessary and maybe that lengthening is something you could let go of um, so maybe there's a compromise between those things mm. I think a lot of it comes down to actually, like you say, it's a sales job. It, it, it's making the client realize 
that if they don't put the work in, it's going to be inferior. And, right. and, and convincing them that, okay, there may be other people out there that are saying, oh, we can take this off your hands and make it all wonderful. And there but, are. There absolutely are. Oh, but it, it's, it's convincing them that, that that isn't the truth of it, that it will be better if they put in the effort. And it's not just something that ends at the sales job, unfortunately. It's actually an attitude that needs to be carried through through all those activities as well. I, I ran into uh, something recently where somebody – we were in a, a taxonomy discussion and we were in one of those workshops and there was a pretty core disagreement. But one of the people in the room had a, a slightly higher title than the other person uh, that was in differing opinion and leading them through the conversation of, no, you're not just going to say, okay, whatever – like you are going to put your points out there and we're going to have a real discussion until there's resolution here. Um, that takes, you know, I think it takes courage more than anything. But yeah. that's, I feel like I've been working on courage more than diagrammatic technique for much of my career. And I mean, that's the other thing that, that struck me is that, you know, the kind of work you're talking about here and the kind of people that you're interacting with, it, it needs a certain self-confidence and a certain... You know, it's not easy, is, is I guess what I'm getting at, because, you know, these kinds of people can be relatively intimidating people. They're senior management. They're normally, you know, white middle aged men of a certain age. Do you find that that's an issue from your point of view? No, that, I, I'll be honest. That doesn't describe the my reality. I work with uh, a pretty diverse set of people over, oh, good. Uh, over the course of my career. But I would say that people do come in with their own frameworks of the world and the way that the working world specifically works. And right. especially if you're on um, on the side of the organization that is more management um, and you're making major decisions for the way other people's time and, and other people's money is being allocated, there there is like this kind of wall that you have to break through with those people sometimes to let mm. them know, hey, you're not being judged on your opinions in this meeting. You're mm. being judged on your ability to collaborate and help us come to resolution. Yeah. Um, because there are a lot of cultures that um, in, in corporations and the larger the corporation, I, I think I have noticed the more likely this is to have your hierarchy kind of create this this system of intimidation mm. um, around opinions and decision making and who's in the room changes the conversation and that kind of stuff. So yeah, I do I do deal with that. You know, yeah. more than uh, more than the demographic realities of, of organizations. Oh, that's encouraging. Yeah. So, so uh, if you kind of had to, it seems a bit of a dumb question. I'm almost embarrassed to ask the question, but uh, it, it's if you had to kind of identify one secret source to kind of this doing solid IA work, the one thing that people really need to consider, what would you home in on? Question asking. Hmm. I think that we are, at least in my design education, I was not taught to properly ask questions. Right. It took me a really long time working, you know, internally, um, externally, both from the consulting and, and agency perspective, to understand the impact of asking good questions. Yeah. Um, and also the implications of asking bad questions. Yeah. So I, I do find an, a lot of my time with my students is actually spent on that. I think there was another another element that I picked up from the book that that I found very enlightening was the the kind of uh, I don't know quite how to word it. You word it so much better than than I could in the book. But this this idea of language and how language is very open to interpretation and misunderstanding. So it's not only 
the question asking, but it's also how to interpret the answers correctly. Is that a fair comment? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think one of the most important questions you could ask somebody in most situations you'd find yourself, especially in design, is what do you mean when you say that? Yeah. Because I don't think we ask people that enough. And often, not only is it kind of, if you've never been asked that at work, it definitely throws people off. Like, what do you, uh, (laughs) isn't it obvious what I mean? Um, But I think it, it is really important for us to kind of get underneath that difference between the content that we're putting out and the information that, that lives in other people's heads. And the only way to do that is to, to ask, you know, and to really uh, use whatever objects we need to have that conversation deeply and thoughtfully and not just talk with our hands and uh uh-huh through it. Mm. That was the thing that kept coming across when I first heard you speak is this, this idea of all the time digging deeper, you know, not taking, not presuming you understand a situation too soon and not settling for the first thing somebody says, but actually digging under the surface. Yeah, uh, Richard Saulwerman actually, he, he said brilliantly that uh, it's the journey from not knowing to knowing. Mm. I really feel like that's, that is what I try to, to instill, not, not just in my work, but also in the, the work of whatever team I'm, I'm talking to. Like if you walk into the first meeting thinking that you know the answer, how deep are you really going to go? Yeah. So yeah. Part, part of that is the responsibility to say, I don't know the answer and that's okay. And people don't always feel very comfortable with not having the answers to things. You know, you gotta, you gotta kind of make a safe space where it's okay to not know. Also, I think people sometimes struggle with you as the expert, not knowing the answer going in, you know, mm-hmm. there's, there's this expectation that you, you know, that you'll have the answer that you'll know what, what, you know, what's right and what's not right in a particular situation rather than you have a process that gets you to the answer. Yeah, no, I, I think that between people believing that I know the answer and just won't give it to them and people believing that there is a pattern that will always work. I mean, those are like the those are the big monsters in in my IA closet. I'm just like, oh, God, this again. Yeah, because oh, it's, it's both of those things are just it's not going to happen. I'm not going to tell you how to do it because I don't know any more about your business than you do. I will help you figure it out, though. Yeah, and that's a really good point. That that, that thing of that they think you're hiding the answer for them and it's almost like oh we're going through this you know this consultancy process because they've got to be seen to be open and collaborative and including people and you're going no no it's because i really need to understand what's going on here you know just does my head in (laughs) no and there's definitely a moment where that's exactly what happens in the meeting there is always a moment where somebody will realize oh you actually are doing this in real time. Like you're not just you're not like fattening us up for the kill later or something. Yeah. You know, and it's just like but I do think that there there is a lot of uh I guess agency theater that goes on. I, I've yeah. definitely seen a lot of that. I've been part of some of that in my past. Um the dog and pony show of of bringing out the decks. Yeah. Decks on parade. <laughs> uh but I don't I don't like to have much part of that anymore. So that brings me nicely on to the last question really, which is I mean, is there actually best practice in information architecture or does it vary so much between audience and company requirements that that essentially you are feeling your way every project? I like to assume at the beginning of every project that it will be the special snowflake that it wants to be. Right. But I also do find that there are times where 
the examples that exist out there are useful uh, to either lean on or replicate entirely. I mean, there's just not that many ways to cut something at yeah. a certain point when you're working with the same materials and the same business model and the same type of organization. But I will say that doesn't happen very often. I mean, unless you're working in, in the same vertical for competitive clients, I don't see a lot of like lift and shift going on in my work. Okay. That's, that's so, good. But what I do see is that the craft kind of um, over time of practicing information architecture, you do kind of get into the groove of certain certain diagram types being good at proving certain points or certain um, documentation techniques being more well-received by certain types of organizations. So you learn those kinds of things over time, I would say, more than the, the patterning of the way you're actually arranging their, their stuff. I guess as well, you, br- you build up a toolkit of approaches and methodologies that help move people towards the final deliverable so even though the deliverable itself doesn't necessarily have any standard model or best practice maybe there's a a, a set of best practice in in how you move towards that deliverable is that a fair comment sure yeah and i mean there's absolutely ways to diagram thoughtfully and ways to diagram not thoughtfully so i mean those those things are definitely uh teachable and there's there's skills that you can glean um oh if i could rid the world of bad diagrams (laughs) now i've got to ask a follow-up question we were supposed to be on the last question but you raised that so what makes a question as well oh okay (laughs) let me let me do mine first then you could do yours marcus what makes a bad diagram then the, un- the audience of the diagram not understanding it. <laughs> and pe- but people nodding because they're embarrassed that they, they, yeah. they, should, they should understand it. Oh, yes. yes oh, I yes, see. Yes. I see it all the time. I also see – I also do see a fair bit of designers judging diagrams for their aesthetic appeal and Ooh, not, yeah. not realizing the inherent value in the diagram. Um, because I, I see ugly technology diagrams that, you know, in air quotes uh, from the design mentality that are actually quite useful to the technologists that they're meant to communicate with. So I think that being able to separate your what looks good from what is good situation with diagrams is, is a really important first step. The second thing is um, sloppy. Like there are sloppy diagrams and there are neat diagrams. And I can't – I have not yet found a way – to prove this point but i don't see much need in the world for sloppy diagrams so make your lines straight make your boxes straight align stuff clean it up everything will be better everybody will understand more so but maybe i'll disprove myself at some point i might find like a context where a trashy messy sloppy diagram is actually better who knows the only the only scenario i can ever think of in regards to that is that sometimes if it's too neat and too tidy people think it's too set in stone to change Yeah, so, yeah, sure. That's and, a, and they a might ju- judge the, uh, the the aesthetic quality of it as well. Maybe I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go on then, Marcus. What was your question? Yeah, sorry to add another question. question That's on all right. the, That you don't know about Abby, but um, it's, oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah, woo, this is going to be the best question you've ever been asked. Um, <laughs> because I kind of fell into doing IA work. Um, I'm just interested to know. You mentioned that you had a design training or something like that early, and you also mentioned that you you you. Uh, teach people and I'd, I'd like to know a bit more about that but kind of how did you end up doing information architecture were you a graphic designer before and I, you know basically where, how did you end up doing this so I went to school for uh, to undergraduate for graphic design uh, mm-hmm. and I actually focused in typography right. um, but 
I was also recruited in my second year of undergrad into a program called Multimedia Studies, mm-hmm. uh, which <laughs> I guess that dates me a little yeah. bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I maybe, know what it means. Maybe the, maybe the kids are still saying that, that <laughs> word, multimedia. I don't think um, they are. <laughs> no, I don't think so either. But it's essentially what, what it was was a trial program where they took two graphic designers, two photographers, two music technologists, uh, two programmers, and two animators, and they put us all in a lab that was exclusively ours for two years. And we took special classes together that was across uh, those disciplines, and then we took our own classes within our disciplines. And our main drive was that we were supposed to create um, something together as like a small company would by the end of it. So we made an interactive video game. I was the environmental art director for that. So I created all of the digital places within the game, uh, including the way that they looked and, uh, you know, the, the visual styling of them. Um, so that was my, my education side. I learned about things like information architecture from my print design teachers. So I took a class called information architecture, which was the main deliverable was a, a poster that was breaking down a complex thought topic into something that you could teach to people looking at a poster on a street. Um, so those kinds of of words were thrown around, but I never thought I would come out of school and become a professional information architect. Uh, that was not something that, that was brought to my attention until uh, I graduated, and I was hired by a company via Craigslist um, to design a set of icons for banking software in Bermuda. And that sounds about as sketchy as it is. Um, that was <laughs> That was, you know paying the bills with icons at that point and um, that was my first job out of school and when I went to go give them the icons the technical architect had like photoshopped the icons into the interface to show me and I got really upset I was just like this is not usable like I don't know what you guys are trying to get across here but this is not the way that I would do it icons don't make sense here and by the way this whole like the way that the software looks and, and seems to make sense just doesn't make sense so I don't know I just I, I can't see being any part of this. And the project manager asked me if I knew what information architecture was. And I said, of course I do. I'm a print designer. And he said, no, no, no. And he gave me the polar bear book. Really? Um, he did, yeah. And I was, I was 21 years old, and I was standing in an office park in New Hampshire. And about three weeks later, I started my first day as a junior information architect at that consultancy. Uh, they, they wanted to, put, to take a chance on me. I need to <laughs> so. put a link in the show notes to the Polar Bear book just in case people don't know what it is. Because Ah, uh, yes, Information Architecture for the World Wide Web by Lou Rosenfeld and Peter Morville. Yeah. I'm slightly disappointed, though, I have to say, because basically you did a load of stuff that kind of trained you up in, in – and I'll tell you why I'm disappointed in just a sec. But you, kind of, you did a load of stuff you know, as a, as a graphic design training, et cetera, et cetera, and then you kind of – fell into doing information architecture that didn't really have a connection i mean yeah oh, there is there is a connection um i was hoping you had you were going to tell me that you went and trained in information architecture and this is what people should no. do um, but no you, no you i i haven't uh, i haven't done that not no, yet not, neither Maybe have I'll i go but, back at, at some point <laughs> uh, um uh, you you mentioned that you, you you know you that you teach people who who are you teaching uh, what, how so, is it part of what is it part of i guess if anything sure so I teach at the School of Visual Arts here in New York City, and I am part of a program called Products of Design. Uh, and Products of Design is a, an amazing program. It's very small. We have uh, 16 students this year. Um, and their focus is on learning the, the way of the design world as opposed to um, picking a specialty. 
So they are taught um, some classical industrial design skills around working with physical materials. They are taught interaction design and and screens. Uh, They're also taught to cook and sew and sculpt and (laughs) paint and things like that. So they're sort of, it's very renaissance. Yeah, it's very renaissance. Um, So in their second year, uh, last their last semester, they have me as their thesis uh, teacher. So we have, instead of a classical uh, thesis program, we have information architecture as sort of the way that thesis comes together. And they are uh, asked to publish a book of 25,000 words describing their intent and their work. They have to give a 12-minute TED-style talk, and they have to produce a three- to five-minute video about their, their work and the, uh, the sort of relationship it has to the, the industry that they're working within. So that's, it's, it's that's, quite a, that's quite a thesis there, if yeah. I may say so. That's quite a lot you're asking for them. Yeah, so they're given a year. Uh, typically, okay. you know, thesis is, is just the last semester, but yeah. they're they actually given the full year. So in the first semester, they are finding their topic and they're kind of wayfinding their way through to a more salient point on that topic. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the midterm defense, we have that at the end of the first semester. Um, their faculty from the next semester comes in to evaluate their progress, give them some feedback. And then when they come in for the next semester, uh, being their last, all of their classes are actually around their thesis. So they're taking a, a screen-based interaction design class uh, where all of their project work is around their thesis. It's all individual work towards that body. Um, they're taking a, a class that I'm so jealous of uh, on futures, <laughs> so futuring and speculative design. Uh, and once again, all of the work that they do is, is towards that. They're taking a, a wonderful experience experience design class with Emily Bolt, uh, which resulted in some amazing, amazing experiences last year. We had a, one of my students opened a superhero training gym, uh, and another one did a, uh, an ice cream shop that was meant to teach people how to have safe sex. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's really fun. I, I absolutely love my, my teaching job. That's fantastic. Wow. Anyway, we could carry on forever, but we... I know, I know. I I totally... I could go on about my students for at least another 20 minutes, so you got to cut me off. Oh, yeah. We've told ourselves that we're going to stick this to uh, 40 minutes for these interviews. I I could talk to you forever, Abby. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Where can people find out more about you? Uh, com, and I am always on Twitter. Yeah, oh, yes, as we all are. <laughs> all right, thank you very much for coming on the show, and uh, hopefully we'll get you back again in the future to talk about some of this stuff in more depth still. But thank you very much. Welcome. All right, thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Abby. So you have to go out right now and buy her book, because it's brilliant. Have you read it yet, Marcus? Yeah, of course I have. I thought you had. You'd read it before the interview, hadn't you? No, I haven't read it at all. All right. <laughs> You so should do. It's a brilliant book, and it's short as well. Yeah, well, I kind of got it from the horse's mouth, you know? Yeah, but it's not as good as reading it. A 40-minute interview, or however long it was, with with Abby. I mean, amazing though she is, obviously. It's not as good. It doesn't go into as much detail as the book. And also, in the book, you can highlight things and then quote them at people in an aggressive manner when they don't agree with you. There was a guy at Smashing Comp, the first guy to speak... Looks at his notes. Uh, 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 he was talking about basically reading, and it was good stuff. Where is it? Smashing. There it is at the top. Christopher Murphy. Okay. Um, uh, his talk was a good writer is a good thinker. And he was basically saying that you need to read stuff on stuff you don't think you want, need to know about. Does that yes. Make sense? Yes. 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 
Um, you know, like he was, he he used the example of economics. Um, yeah. You know, and and maths and music and mm. stuff like that and all this kind of thing will t- will make you pretty much better at anything you do. Um, I, oh, I've been saying this for so long. This is this is a pet subject. Of mine. I'm fed up with designers and developers that only ever read blooming oh the latest jQuery plugin. You mm. know, you know how many tutorials can you read on jQuery or how many you know articles can you read about design inspiration? Go mm. read something else. Go read about psychology or sales or economics or whatever yeah. psychology anthropology economics pricing models maths heuristics i've written down here. i love them all yes, yes. great uh, i've never you... read anything on math so i think that might be pushing my luck a bit <laughs> well you know i don't know it's it is fascinating stuff maths right? well absolutely i'm not saying it's not fascinating i'm just saying that my <laughs> intelligence <hurt>. might struggle <laughs> but yeah he also mentioned a, um, a book that i will be buying called how to read a book <laughs> that's just by mortimer awesome. j adler I think I might have to read, uh, buy that. I've got such a long list of books I want to read. Mm. I never have enough time. Yeah, well, it, ditto. And my problem, as I was discussing with Chris the other night, is um, I'm very naughty about only reading storybooks because I love them so much. I know. Uh, and I've just kind of got this endless list. I've got probably six books waiting. Yeah. And I just go from one to the other to the other to the other. And am I going to break that with a book on economics? Mm, probably not. I, I forced myself for a while to alternate. Yeah. And then I got lazy again and started going back to science fiction books. It's not good. Yeah. It's not good. Anyway, I let's discovered quickly... a new author, by the way. Oh, yeah, go. A guy called Neil Gaiman. Oh, everybody knows Neil Gaiman. Oh, no, they don't. Yes, they do. No, they don't, because I mentioned him to somebody the other day, and they said, oh, I've never heard of him. So Neil there. Gaiman is one of the most well-known British writers. Well, all uh, right. And he's, he's been good to me. He's good friends with Terry Pratchett. Yeah. Oh, wasn't that sad? Yeah, he wrote a book with Terry Pratchett, actually. I haven't he read did. that one yet. But I'm basically going through the Neil Gaiman books, and um, they're fab. Yeah, he's awesome. He wrote um, a, a, a Doctor Who episode, but you won't care because you don't like Doctor Who. Uh, I don't. Well, no, I don't watch it. So no, can't comment. Can, can I talk about Mailchimp? Yeah, oh, not God. Mailchimp. <laughs> no, we're not talking about Mailchimp. We're talking about Media Temple. Oh yeah, God, that's embarrassing. <laughs> I'm good at this. Honest. Yeah. Right. Very so, professional, Paul. I, I've discovered yet another service that uh, Media Temple offer. I say I've discovered because Media Temple are rubbish at giving me points to talk about, so I make up my own. Oh, right, so this doesn't actually exist. This is... No, no, I got it from their website. <laughs> I, no, I didn't kind of make it up. That's awesome. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Media Temple offer a free... Free cakes. Free cake and free hosting and um, free everything that you can imagine. <laughs> Just go to mediatemple.net and email them and says, Paul says. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> so I will tell you about a real service that they offer. They've got a team of people that are um, dedicated to helping you move your site, right? So it, because that's a big pain in the ass, moving from one hosting environment to another, okay? You, you literally just fill in the shortest form in the world, right? And that's all you do. The next, the next business day, they give you a ring, okay? They ask you a few questions, um, have a chat with you, um, they then work out what the best platform is for you to be moving to. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's it. And they do it all for you. Okay. No di- downtime on your site whatsoever. 
$150 per site that you do it on. But this is real people doing it manually themselves to make sure it's right, not some fancy automated service. And they'll also help you move away from Media Temple if you want to. <laughs> What? Well, yeah. they're getting paid, so, yeah. Yeah. So, if you decide, oh, Media Temple isn't right for me for whatever reason, then then they'll do it for you. They'll help you do it for you. And, <laughs> and I hope that uh, the the the, uh, the naughty person in me hopes that they mess it up every now and then. What, just on, co- <laughs> on purpose? You bloody yeah. leave us, you're going to pay the price. <laughs> yeah. You're a bad person. I'm sure they're much nicer. <laughs> yes. So I thought that was a what a cool service to offer. I really like that a lot. Um, and also, if you, you you know if you're unsure, like one of the problems is, is you might be thinking, well, you know, I've got quite a specific server configuration. Is it going to work if I move across onto Media Temple? The great thing about using this service is that they'll you know you, basically they'll tell you whether or not it will, and and uh, you know look at it and identify it for you. Um, and and so you you know if if they say they can't transfer it because it's not compatible, then you don't pay anything. So I think that's awesome. So $150 per site, I think, is an absolute bargain. Of course, you'll also need your um, Media Temple hosting with them, unless, of course, you're moving away from them. But if you are moving to them and you want this deal to help you out, that's great. But you'll need your hosting as well. And you can get a special discount on your hosting using the promo code BOAG, BOAG, for 25% off your web hosting. So all you need to do is go to boagworld.com forward slash media temple and enter that promo code when you sign up. And then you'll be able to find as well this kind of site transfer service at the same time. And it'll all be glorious and wonderful. So there you go. Whoop. Sorry? Whoop. Whoop. There you go. Is that all you've got to say on it? <laughs> Whoop. Anyway, Marcus, joke time. Although, I need to warn you. Mm-hmm. I got the transcription back for last week's show. Do you remember we were talking about Tommy Cooper? Oh, yeah. And I made the mistake of saying to Meg, who transcribes it, I mentioned, I said to Meg on the show, go and find a nice video for Tommy Cooper to include in the show notes. Right. She got a bit carried away. (laughs) And I think wasted several hours researching Tommy Cooper. So she put this little note in the bottom of the show notes that I have left in. Saying she now knows every joke you're going to say between now and the end of the season. Well, this isn't a Tommy Cooper joke. Ah, so. oh. that's what I was hoping. <laughs> so you've you've shown Meg her comeuppance <laughs> and proved that you have a wider repertoire than Tommy Cooper. Yeah, this was from a friend on Facebook, um, and it's my favourite joke for a long time. Oh, you're really bigging it up. I know, I am bigging it up. And I think it's more of a joke that is better written down than said out loud. But hey, I'm going to say it anyway. Go for it. Right, here we go. It's hard to explain puns to kleptomaniacs. Because they always take things literally. No, I don't get it. Silence. They always take things literally. Oh, right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, that is entirely my fault. I always felt this vague moment of panic when you tell a joke. (laughs) Shit, am I going to get it? Yeah, if I don't get it, I'm just going to look really thick and everybody's going to be going, oh, honestly, Paul, that is so obvious. No, it's one of those, it it is a joke when you go, and they go, oh. Yeah. (laughs) No, it's a good one. Well done. That is. And it's not a Tommy Cooper joke. No. Well, it might have been. No, I I don't think it was. It doesn't sound like a Tommy. Well, yeah, it does. It's got that short snappiness to it. Yeah. 
But it sounds a bit too intellectual for Tommy Cooper, let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Tommy Cooper was just silliness. Yes. Anyway, you want to know, Horton, who's on next week's show, don't you? Who's on next week's show, Paul? And I've actually looked it up this time. And it's Aaron Walters. Oh, right, yes. Who well, is I, awesome. I remember speaking to, to Aaron. Yes. So Aaron, Aaron is from MailChimp. Hence, I said MailChimp when I meant Media Temple earlier. Um, and he's coming on and he's talking about kind of branding and personality and all that kind of stuff. So I think it's going to be a really great interview. Um, so tune in for that next week. Episode 13. Unlucky for some. Probably for us. <laughs> there you go. Bye. Is that how we're ending? Just for the bye. I've said bye. I wanted to stay silent then, but I wasn't brave enough. So you just put a silly bye on the end. Yeah. Bye. So that's it for this week's show. Goodbye. There bye. You go. That was a better ending. Go with that one. We'll go, I'll go with that one. I bet you'll go with both, won't you? Yeah, and all this bit. Yeah, probably. All right then. See ya. See ya. Oh,